If you have your uh, worship folder there handy, we're going to read this morning from Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 14, and then we're going to take a look at this passage together for a few minutes. Uh, Feel free to follow along either on your folder or on your phone or in your Bible or whatever device you have would be great. Uh, This is God's word. Let's, Let's listen. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death and in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you've been with us the last uh, several weeks, we've taken a break from uh, the series we've been working through this this year, looking at the book of Romans and the book of Genesis. We've been taking a look at our vision or parts of our vision as a church, but we're now back in Romans, and we are going to be in Romans, uh, this great letter uh, from the Apostle Paul uh, till uh, till Advent. We're going to make it through uh, chapter 8. Uh, by early December, and then we'll pick up uh, back in Genesis uh, after the first of the year. But just to remind you, uh, somewhat of a recap since we've been away from uh, this letter for about uh, five, four or five weeks, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome in about 56 AD, and he had never visited Rome when he wrote this, and he had never met these people, but he had heard about this church that had been started there. And the theme of this whole letter can really be summed up as God's good news for the whole world. That's what Paul's trying to convey throughout the 16 chapters of this letter. And we last left off looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. And there's a question that I asked when we looked at that passage. And the question I asked was this, how do you make sense of your life? And there are a number of answers we could give to that, but 
In that passage in Romans 5, just before this passage, Paul gives an answer that uh, we noticed reaches further back and goes deeper than any other. And that passage really is all about Adam, referring to Adam uh, from Genesis 1 through 3 and thereafter, and Christ. And Paul talks about these two figures as the two most important figures in the whole biblical story. And in fact, in all of history. And he describes Adam as the one who stands at the head of humanity ruined. Adam stands at the head of humanity ruined. And in contrast, Paul describes Jesus Christ standing at the head of a whole new humanity redeemed. And those are the two options. You are either in Adam and a part of the humanity that is ruined by sin, or you are in Christ and you are part of the new humanity who is redeemed through faith in him. And what we saw was that Jesus is God's answer to Adam's failure and all who are represented by him. And towards the end of Romans chapter 5, what we discovered was that this free gift, Jesus Christ, freely given, is greater than the trespass of Adam. And Paul says that where sin abounds, grace superabounds. In other words, Jesus, or put it another way, Adam's sin is no match for the grace of God in Jesus. However bad it is, however terrible it is, however far-reaching it is, it's no match for God's grace in Jesus. But there was a major misunderstanding of what did it mean when Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This was a problem that the Roman Christians had, and I think it's a problem that lives with us even today. That if it is really true that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then what's the point of living a holy life? And in fact, Paul asked this very question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There is a way of construing the good news about Jesus as, well, if, if grace superabounds where there's sin, then I should just continue living as I always have because that will just make grace that much greater and more plentiful. And Paul, without hesitation, as an instinctive, decisive reaction to this line of thinking, he says in verse 2, by no means, or absolutely not, or if just sort of street level, that's crazy. There is no way for Paul, that you can actually make that case and it be anything like resembling Christianity. And so, here's what I want us to look at this morning. What Paul is teaching us, put it, to put it positively, is that the gospel, when it's rightly understood and believed, necessarily leads to a changed life. When the gospel is rightly understood and believed, it necessarily leads to a changed life. And Paul responds to this misunderstanding of the gospel uh, along two lines. And we're just going to look at those this morning. The first one is our new identity. 
verses 3 through 10. And the second line is our daily task, verses 11 to 14. So our, our new identity in verses 3 through 10 and our daily task in verses 11 to 14. So first, let's look at Paul's first response to this idea that uh, we should just continue in sin so that grace would abound all the more. The very first thing, notice here in verse 2, about the identity of a Christian, and this is fundamental, he says in verse 2, how can we who died to sin live in it? See, a Christian is someone who has died to sin. Now we've got to ask the question, first of all, what does he mean by that? What does it mean when he says that someone who trusts in Jesus has died to sin? And where we need to look to begin to unravel this and understand what he means is to look at actually the death of Jesus. Look down in verse 10. Here he's speaking about Jesus. He says, for the death he died, he died to sin. Paul is telling us something here about what the death of Jesus means for us. What it meant for him. And in fact, this is the only place in all of Paul's letters that he speaks like this. Where he says, uses this phrase, died to sin. I think we're used to hearing phrases like this. That Christ died for our sins. And in fact, we we looked at a passage like this a few weeks ago when we looked at gospel centrality from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, for I deliver to you of what is first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Several times Paul uses that phrase. But here's the question. Does Paul mean the same thing by Christ died for our sins when he uses the phrase died to sin? And the answer is absolutely not. And it's crucial that you understand that and that you understand why. Because if we don't see what Paul is saying here, you have half a gospel, not a whole gospel. So what's the difference? What does Paul mean when he says died for our sins? What I want you to understand, what Paul means when he uses that phrase, he is describing how the death of Jesus on the cross is a bearing of punishment. That when he says that Christ died for our sins, he's talking about the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin. When he uses the phrase died to sin, he's talking about the power of sin. Not the penalty of sin. He's describing and and helping us understand that Jesus' death to sin was a death to sin as a power. Now, how do we know that? Because if you look later in this passage, and look in verse 6, he uses the phrase enslaved to sin. You look in verse 7, set free from sin. Uh, You look down in verse 9 and verse 14, he uses the word dominion. In verse 12, he uses the word reign. These are all 
power words. These are all authority words. These are ruling, kingly words even. These are words that describe a relationship that you have with sin. What Paul is talking about here, when he says, died to sin, when he says, Jesus died to sin, what he's telling you is, the power of sin has been broken. The power of sin has been broken. You see, to understand the good news about Jesus, you need to know it's not just the penalty of sin that is removed, that's taken care of, but also the power of sin over your life and in this world has been broken. Now, what's that mean for us? I want you to, I want you to feel or to see the force here of Paul's logic, all right? As is... Uh, Typical of Paul, like this is a dense passage. So I want to try to help you see what he's saying. Remember, verse 10, what does he say? He says, the death Jesus died, he died to sin. And then in verse 5 at the beginning, and in verse 8 at the beginning, verse 5, we have been united with him in this death. Verse 8, we have died with Christ. Okay, you following him. Jesus died a death to sin. We have been united with him in his death. Therefore, we have died to sin. Do you see that? That's what Paul is saying. The result then is, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. That's verse 11. All right? Now, there are two implications of this I want you to see. And I'm gonna, I've got an illustration, so I'm going to give you a break while <laughs> I, I try to tell you that. I, I know I'm giving you a lot here. The first implication is this, what Paul is saying. What is true of Jesus and his death and resurrection is true for all who are united to him by faith. You know, we, we refer to people who do what we're doing right now as Christians. That's not how Paul would refer to you. How Paul would refer to you as you are someone who is in Christ. Fundamental to this whole passage is Paul's teaching over and over that to be a Christian means you are united to Jesus. And that what's true of him is true of you. That's the first implication. And the second implication here is, if that's true, you cannot both have died to something and still be living in it. Let me say that again. What he's saying is, it is impossible, it's a contradiction for you to both have died to sin and to still be living in it. And we're going to look at what that means. Now let me give you a, a little bit of a, of a story here, an example of, of, of what I think this can mean. I, I, I'm, I'm very much indebted to Sinclair, or Sinclair Ferguson for some of these illustrations who has helped me to think through what Paul is saying here quite a bit. And he tells this story that there is a, uh, a South Korean professional golfer right now who plays primarily in the United States. And he is incredibly good, multi-million dollar endorsement contracts. But his citizenship is as a South Korean. 
And recently, the South Korean government called him up for military service. And despite petitioning, despite his abilities, despite his current success, and whatever acclaim that might bring to the South Korean people, the government said, no, you have to come home and you have to serve in our military. Now think about this. Just imagine with me for a minute. What if before he had been called up for military service, he had become a United States citizen? And what if he could have written in response to this letter to come serve in the military, I am no longer under your dominion. You have no claim on me anymore. I am free now. I am an American citizen. Now, even although his genes would still have been Korean, and all of the past influences on his life would have been from his life in South Korea, his status would have been radically changed. He would be free from the old authority because he was living under a new authority. The South Korean that he once was now was no more or would be no more. Now, I want you to think about that. I'm, what I, I'm not, hear me, I am not saying that to become a Christian or dying to sin is like becoming an American citizen. <laughs> it's not what I mean. I'm just trying to illustrate the point of it's a change in status that you now live under a new authority, a new kingdom, a new reign, a new power. Now, I think this is something that's hard to grasp, which is precisely why Paul is having to spend so much time saying this to these Roman Christians. It's, it, it takes uh, rehearsing it again and again. But I want you to notice something, that in this passage, God gives us something, a gift, to help us understand what is being said here. And it's the gift of baptism. Look here in verses uh, 3 and 4. You see, a Christian is someone who listens to their baptism. Now, what, what do I mean by that? There is a, 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 uh, a large group of, or large uh, band of thinking, especially in the Christian world, that would say something like this, that baptism really speaks about my faith. That my baptism is an expression of what I believe. And I, I would tell you that's actually not primarily what the scriptures teach about baptism. That primarily what the scriptures teach about baptism, baptism speaks to faith. Your baptism preaches to you a message of good news. One writer put it like this, that baptism says, look at what is yours in Christ, not look at the faith that brought you to Christ. Your baptism is God preaching good news to you. And what, what is that? What does baptism preach to you? Notice here for a moment, what does he, he says, you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead 
by the glory of the Father, we might too walk in new life. All right, your baptism, here's what it tells you. It says, I am no longer the person that I once was in Adam. I am a new person now in Jesus. It tells you that you are someone who has died to the power of sin and you've been raised to new life. It tells you that you are someone who has been delivered from the power of sin and that you've been transferred into a whole new kingdom, into the kingdom of God. I want you to think of baptism like a naming ceremony. Uh, We had a baptism last week. What is the one thing every time I do a baptism I say to whether a child or an infant? I say, I baptize you into what? Into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a new identity. You are getting a new name. Now think about this for a moment. When your parents gave you your name, you don't remember that, but you were given a name, and that name has had a lifelong impact on you. You now instinctively respond to maybe one or two words that your parents gave you, your name. It tells you who you are, It identifies you. It reminds you where you've come from. It reminds you of what privileges that you've had. Uh, And it even reminds you of the lifestyle that you perhaps are expected to live as a member of that family. And if that's true in the name that your parents gave you, how much more would it be true in the name that God the Father has given you in your baptism? How does what Paul is teaching us here take deep root in your life? It it takes root by you remembering your name. Now, none of us forget our name. None of us have ever walked into a room and said, oh my goodness, I remember your name, but I don't remember my name. For me, it's always the opposite. I always forget your name. But here, what we're being told is, You've been given a new name. So how can you try to remember this name that you've been given that tells you you've died to sin? You've been raised to new life. You are a new person in Jesus. That brings us to the second point here of our daily task. Look in verse 11. If this is all true, Paul says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This word, consider yourself, or reckon yourself, or regard yourself as someone who has died to sin and has been made alive in Christ. What does that mean? What what would it look like to consider yourself in light of this message, in light of what Jesus has done? Well, Paul gives us here in verse 12 to 14 what I want to call for your memory's sake, three R's. Here's what it looks like to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. First, we see it in verse 12. Reject the efforts of sin to rule your life. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Reject the efforts of sin to run your life. 
Second, refuse. Refuse to give yourself to sin's demands. But instead, give yourself to righteousness or to what God loves. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So reject, refuse, and the third, realize. From verse 14, realize if the power of sin has been broken, then it has lost all right to control you ever again. He says, verse 14, sin will have no dominion or power or authority over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now, That's what it means to consider yourselves in light of this. Reject, refuse, and realize. But it's important that we understand what Paul is not saying. What Paul is not saying is that to believe this means that Christians somehow live in a perfect world where sin is utterly destroyed and and, and no longer present. He's not saying that. He is not saying that we would no longer experience the influence and impact of our old self. He's not saying that we won't experience the influence and impact of the power of sin. And he is not saying that the presence of sin in your life has been eradicated. What he's saying is the power of sin has been broken. He is saying that sin no longer has power over you. And to be a Christian means that you are now a citizen of a new kingdom. That you now live under a new master. A gracious king. Now what that means for us, let's think about this. What are you supposed to do when sin feels overwhelming? When the presence of sin presses in on you. Take, for example, something like anger or lust or greed. You see, when you really follow what Paul is saying here, what he said earlier in chapter 5, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. That is a call to action, not a call to complacency. What he's saying is, in the gospel, in Jesus, Grace superabounds over the power of sin in your life. So when you find yourself face to face later today with your own anger and frustration, or you find yourself thinking or imagining things that are lustful, or you find yourself pining after things that are more than what God has given you, Here's what you need to do. You need to say, you know what? I am no longer under sin's power. I know it feels like it, but I'm not. It is a lie for me to believe that I have to yield and submit to what I'm experiencing. It means you do not have to obey its demands. You can revolt. Grace superabounds. It means that you are no longer under the power of sin. You are under the power now of God's grace. 
Now, you're, maybe you're feeling like, oh, this sounds really hard, and it is. That's why Paul says, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So what I want to do to tie this together, I want to try to help you to think about our identity and our task. And I want us to all imagine for a minute that every one of us in here is an addict. That every one of us in here is an addict. And we are on the path to recovery. And here's the thing. What Paul is telling us here is you've died to sin, you're alive to God, but here's the reality. You are having to learn how to live a whole new life again. You're having to learn how to walk again, how to talk, how to think, how to navigate the opportunities and complexities of life in ways that are totally new and unfamiliar to you, that are maybe counterintuitive to you. And it's going to take practice. It's going to mean having to learn to do new things over and over and again and again. And again, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, in, in writing about this, tells of a conversation he had with a physician friend who was uh, an expert in addiction recovery. And this physician told him, he's like, there are two things you have to keep in mind when you're, when you're dealing with addicts. Especially when the addiction has been decisively broken in someone's life. There are two things. The first is, it, once that addiction is decisively broken, it may still take up to 18 months or longer before that person begins to think about himself or herself instinctively in a new way. It takes time to begin to think of yourself instinctively as one who has died to sin and is alive to God in Jesus. But second, the decisive break with the addiction is not the same thing as the destruction of what you were addicted to. What does that mean? What that means is, it's not as though uh, we all of a sudden magically become people who were never addicted. What Paul is saying here is to become a Christian and to know yourself as someone who's died to sin and is alive to God doesn't magically turn you into somebody who never will want to sin again or who will never want to go back to your old addictions, your old ways of living. What he is saying is the gospel opens up to you a whole new world of possibilities to truly live in freedom and joy and even success and fruitfulness over the very things that have sucked the life out of you your entire life. So here's what I want you to think about. Is the gospel changing how you regard yourself? Is the gospel giving you a new self-image, a new self-identity, a new way to think about and wrestle with and interpret the struggles that you face every day? And I don't mean the big ones, though I do. What I really mean is those cynical, sarcastic comments between siblings 
Those biting, cutting words between spouses. Those hateful, spiteful thoughts and emotions that you have towards a colleague who got a promotion and you didn't. Or those people driving down the road in those cars that you don't know how they can afford and wish you could. Those are the kinds of things that I'm I'm thinking of. Is the gospel changing how you regard yourself? And is Paul's good news that where sin abounds, grace abounds? Is that increasingly becoming a call to action? Because there is hope and there is promise to change because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these words that give us a whole new path for living life. Thank you that in Jesus there is not only freedom from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. And Father, we ask that you would help us to consider ourselves in light of and in light of what you say is true as sinners united to Jesus by faith. And Father, I pray for anybody here who has yet to put their faith in Jesus that along with all of us, we would long to be connected to him and experience and know in the depths of our being and the normal everyday affairs of our lives that we are indeed dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, amen.